Welcome everybody to the post-federal election edition of Not For Attribution. My name is Dan Lett. I'm a columnist of the Winnipeg Free Press. This morning I'm joined by what is more or less our regular panel, more or less, uh, columnist Tom Broadbeck, uh, columnist Nigan Sinclair, and stepping out from behind her toil and trouble as producer of Not For Attribution, Jessica Patello-Urbanski is back as a panelist. Um, Today, uh, obviously, uh, we've had a few days to digest uh, kind of one of the more unusual federal elections that we've seen. Um, Tom, like, if you had to pick out one major theme from the, the results, what, what, what is the, the theme of, of this election uh, for you? Well, the biggest one would be the, uh, the division between East and West. I mean, you just you look at the numbers and uh, you, you draw this line at the Ontario-Manitoba border and you see that the Conservatives won the popular vote in every province west of that and the Liberals won the popular vote in every province east of that. I mean, it was almost like two countries. I mean, uh, there was a time for a change movement in the West. I mean, they wanted the government out. And in the East, there was an embracing of the current government. I mean, it's the, the, the contrast was stark. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's something that the Prime Minister um, didn't really acknowledge on election night, but the next day he did. He was a lot more conciliatory. He was a lot more humble. Um, and I think after 36 hours of reflection, you know, him and probably his advisors sat around and realized they're going to have to change their language. So, uh, Nagan, because, you know, Tom said, and it is true, that the, the Ontario, Quebec, and Atlanta, Canada embraced um, Trudeau more than, certainly more than the West. But I think there's also an element, too, of, of Ontario, Quebec, and Atlanta, Canada just not buying into Andrew Scheer. Um, wh what in particular, was it association with Doug Ford? Was it too Western-based? What, what was it, you think, that was his great flaw? Well, I think Canadians generally, uh, particularly in the East, are have a de great deal of concern around Andrew Scheer and around probably closer to social issues as much as kind of a fear uh, involving, the, involving uh, you know, like, the, okay, like I think with the, un, maybe this, this, the untold story of this election or maybe the not enough told story of the election is the resurgence of the block. And so the resurgence of the block was in many ways a rejection of uh, Trudeau, but it was also a rejection of the NDP as well. And it was, it was a resurgence of an weirdly anti or not sovereigntist block party it's like the it's like a very weird moment for the block party in which they're not talking about sovereignty but yet they're talking about quebec interests so within the country itself and so the, i mean that's an interesting moment where in which i think that uh, andrew shear uh, wasn't able to penetrate any of that but it also uh, indicates a sort of quebec feeling of isolation that maybe is not was not thought about and a lot of that is xenophobic. A lot of it is xenophobic in relation to Anglo-Canada. A lot of it is in relation to brown people generally. Uh, and I think, you know, there's this kind of interesting moment in Quebec in which you're seeing a party come up uh, on a fairly div divisive issue that may involve a great deal of race, and yet no one's really talking about it. Jessica, and the, I thought in the moment, leaders' debates, the, the, the moments where they try to tackle Bill 21, to me, was, uh, you know, some of the seminal moments. Uh, because it does create uh, this, you know, really tricky issue for federal leaders. They they all condemn Bill 21. Uh, only Trudeau said that he formally would they would intervene in, in the court case. I think a lot of the leaders think 
the courts are going to take care of this. You know, it's just within the Canadian Constitution, it's going to be difficult to defend. But, I mean, do you think, uh, was this, was the, uh, the color of Yagmeet Singh's skin really the, the definitive issue, or was it the fact that he was a federal leader, one of a, fe a group of federal leaders that condemned Bill 21, and there's a lot of support for it? Do you think, like, we'll ever really know the answer to that question? Jeez, <laughs> give me a softball first thing. Uh, well, now you know if you skip a few issues, you know, episodes, <laughs> you come back, it's right into the deep Hardest end. Hardest questions. Oh, that's tough. Um, I think his color, the color of his skin definitely had something to do with um, how many seats Chuck Meatsine ended up getting in the end, um, especially in Quebec. Um, this was such a crowded field, this election as well. Like all the, see, we saw the People's Party didn't, um, get much traction, get, didn't get any seats, or, or Maxime Bernier's, uh, the leaders. But um, there were so many voices, and Jagmeet Singh was one of the loudest and most um, well-respected, I think, from the other leaders as well, giving him kudos at the leaders' debate, including Andrew Scheer. Um, I, I don't know. I can't give a definitive answer on that one, and I don't think we will ever know if it was racism or if it was lack of policy or just lack of experience and strength on Jagmeet Singh's part or lack of um, lack of recognition from the general public because he's still a relatively new leader as well and people getting to know him. But from everyone I spoke to, people seem to really like Jagmeet Singh after getting to know him through the leaders' debates and throughout this campaign. He left a really great impression, and I think he's going to be around for quite a while with the NDP. I want to just talk briefly about, I mean, I think Jagmeet Singh is, is a good indicative of this, but but also all of the leaders. Has anyone ever remembered a time in memory where at the end of a Canadian election, every single leader gave a victory speech? Like, has anyone ever witnessed that before? Uh, like, when we were watching, I did coverage for another news agency that night, uh, and we, uh, late in the morning, we were watching all the victory speeches. And I say victory speeches because every single leader like uh, the NDP lost 20 plus seats, but yet came out with a we won speech. Uh, Andrew Scheer did not form government, but came out with a we're going to form the next, we're going to form the government in about 20 minutes speech. Uh, Trudeau basically acted like this was one of the best elections, but yet was now in a minority situation. Elizabeth May was widely expected to do way better than she actually did and came out with an election, with a victory speech. Has anyone ever witnessed that in memory? No, I, th I think that that was a kind of a unique situation, although it was a really unique result. Uh, you know, only uh, one other time in the last 50 years has a second place party uh, pulled more votes uh, than the party that uh, that won the most seats. Um, and that was 1979, Joe Clark's minority government win over Pierre Trudeau. So, um, it, you know, and that in and of itself, I mean, it does, that totally speaks to, Tom, the, the issue you brought up, which is the east-west divide, which I also think is an urban-rural divide. Um, uh, it, you know, Eric Grenier's uh, in CBC, uh, uh, he talked this morning about the fact that the major sort of uh, uh, voter issue missed by the pollsters was they were uh, all significantly off on the, the number of votes uh, and the level of support that the Conservatives received in Western Canada. So what you have is sort of a, a, a mini blue wave uh, across, you know, Saskatchewan and Alberta and Manitoba to a certain extent. Uh, but, you know, building up these huge pluralities, loading a lot of votes. Like, the parallel, of course, is 
Yeah, Hillary Clinton got more votes than Donald Trump, but she did it by like killing in California, in the most populous state. So, you know, I think uh, you know going forward, the dynamic that's at play here. It's you know when the Western premiers talk about like there's no place for us in Canada right now. Look at a result like this. They have to understand it's not like it's not Justin Trudeau. It's the rest of Canada that doesn't see Canada the same way that they do. And um, you know, my concern in the, in the next parliament, you know, in, the, in this parliament is, you know, what is Justin Trudeau going to do to help Alberta and Saskatchewan deal with the sea change coming? Uh, economics, environmental policy, you know, you know, the whole, like, what's he going to do? They're talking this morning about investing all this money in uh, clean energy projects. They should be investing in the transition, transformation of those economies. And I don't think they're going to do that. And this is a really big test for Justin Trudeau. And, he, and this is an opportunity for him to work his way back to majority. I mean, if he can really pull this off, I mean, he's up against a weak leadership with the Conservatives. I mean, Andrew Scheer should be replaced. I mean, one of the reasons that they didn't do as well as they should have, in, especially in Ontario and um, uh, and and Quebec, uh, is because of their leader. I mean, he's he's a dud. He's uh, he's uh, uh, indecisive. He looks like uh, deer caught in the headlights when he's asked questions by reporters. Uh, he doesn't know how to answer questions. He his platform was was um, anything but inspiring. I mean, this this business of, you know, we want to make life more affordable for Canadians. I mean, what does that even mean? It, it just doesn't inspire anybody. Um, I could only imagine if they had a leader like Elisa Raid or somebody, what they would have done. And I'm, I'm con convinced the, the results could have been like a, a conservative minority. But for Justin Trudeau, he's got a huge opportunity. I mean, he could take this. And if he plays his cards right, and if, and if he extends, more than extends an olive branch, if he works um really hard with the west and 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 addresses some of these issues uh in a real way not just you know sitting back in ottawa and saying i hear you guys but actually coming out here and and, and meeting with kenny and meeting with mo and meeting with you know people in british columbia and meeting with indigenous leaders and and talking about uh issues and pipelines and and a lot not just you know once a year or something, I think he, I think he could really do something. You know, David Peterson, the former Ontario Premier, yesterday was saying he's never seen the regional disparity this bad. It's not new. Uh, he, ha he said he hasn't seen it this bad in 20 or 30 years. Of course, it was, it was tough in the 80s. I mean, that's where the, the term Western alienation came up, the West wants in, all of these things, the Reform Party and all of that. But it's, it's not new, but it, it, it's reared its ugly head again. I'm just curious how he can properly represent the West without having any seats in the West and having no one in cabinet to uh, speak up for, for Western concerns. Um, we've heard rumblings of possibly appointing a senator from the West or someone who wasn't elected to cabinet. Um, but I can't see that going over well. Uh, Remember when John Kretzian appointed Stefan Dion and, and Pierre Pettigrew who were not even elected? They weren't senators. They weren't. E they were just professors. <laughs> uh, yeah, and then they won by-elections, and he did that for similar reasons. He needed to bring Quebec in. I mean, it was right after the '95 referendum, 51-49. Uh, he needed to do something. Yeah, and, and, and Justin Trudeau's going to have to do something similar. Mm -hmm. And there's a story in our paper today um, from Dylan Robertson about Lloyd Axworthy suggesting maybe have two Winnipeg MPs in cabinet, but Winnipeg, Manitoba just doesn't have the same concerns as the rest of the West and. I can't see that working either. I, I think uh, looking at the results in Manitoba, um, I think the observation that correctly made in our newspaper, are, are we ever wrong? I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> I thought that we're 
Well, yeah, anybody who says they never make a mistake in journalism is lying. But anyways, the, um, I think the, uh, the observation was made that we sort of got a result that does reflect kind of the, uh, the natural state of the Manitoba uh, you know, political landscape. We have a couple of new Democrats, we have four liberals, and then you know, the rest, particularly outside of Manitoba, except for the north, is, um, is uh, conservative blue. Um, it's, uh, it's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I think the province is, um, Manitoba is going to become uh, very strategically important. I think it is kind of, it does become kind of the, uh, um, the um, uh, hinge now for the Trudeau government. I think, I think there certainly, I believe there will be a junior minister, a second junior minister from Manitoba. I, I don't see it so much as an issue that there are no Saskatchewan or Alberta MPs represented in cabinet because, uh, you know, you don't really need that cabinet presence to know the politics and the priorities of, of Western provinces. But it does put a particular focus on the Manitoba liberals to get involved and show that they can be a liaison, you know, a conduit for, for that kind of thing. Do you what, what do you think? Do you see you see somebody from the the Manitoba ranks rising and maybe taking on an additional cabinet role? I think so. Yeah, I mean, especially because they don't have anybody in Saskatchewan uh, or Alberta, and uh, I you know I think Axworthy's recommendation is probably a good one. And I mean, he's got some people to draw from, and Dan Vandell would be, you know, a, a perfect example. Um, he's Métis, he's experienced, former uh, <coughs> francophone. Um, former city councillor, well-liked, well-respected, you know, even-keeled guy, um, um, even a former boxer. I mean, I, I just wanted to... I speaks just, I just speaks wanted, Trudeau's language. I just wanted to throw that... Yeah, that maybe, maybe, you know, <laughs> they got something in common, you know. I just, I don't know why I said that, but, you know, somehow being a boxer or a former boxer, you know, isn't a bad quality to have in... Uh, in uh, today's political climate. But no, I, I think Dan, Dan would be a perfect uh, pick for that. Absolutely. I was at his campaign headquarters on election night and um, was really impressed how, with my scrum with him afterwards, right away, he, he had his talking points at the ready and uh, talking about other parties, coalition, possible coalition partners uh, that might be ready to dance. So he's very well spoken and um, well versed in, in what the Liberals are doing and would probably be a great cabinet pick. Maybe another untold story about this election is uh, there's three really interesting things that emerged in this election. One is this is the very first election in history where Indigenous issues were somewhat relevant. They certainly weren't relevant for the federal leaders, but they were relevant in the debates. They were brought up by media. We even had a debate without the prime minister between the other parties, uh, which was on national television, and Indigenous issues right at the top. Uh, that's interesting. The second thing that was most interesting is that the Indigenous vote held approximately 63 to 64%, whereas everybody widely predicted that the Indigenous vote would become apathetic and uh, disengaged, and I wrote a column about that. Um, we had more Indigenous candidates than any time in history. We tied the uh, highest amount of Indigenous MPs elected than in history. And for the very first time in Canadian history, you will have an Indigenous MP who represents no party. Now, formerly, perhaps, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould is a member of the Liberals, maybe thinks in that way, maybe is interested in coming back to the Liberal fold at some point in the future, uh, certainly without Trudeau as leader, for sure. But 
this is that's that's interesting that is an extremely interesting because it indicates the moment in the country and for the first time in history we actually have polling data on indigenous voters that's consistent and regular it's not a one-time off and what it shows is a, a great deal of indigenous people support the conservative party which i think surprised many canadians uh, aptn ran a poll and uh, what that what that indicates to you though it was within indigenous people there's an urban rural divide as well and most uh, for instance urban metis vote conservative most rural rural First Nation vote NDP. Uh, and so that's interesting. Like we have all of these interesting data for the first time in Canadian history where we can look at it in the indigenous vote, see that it is influ it influenced approximately three dozen ridings in a significant way. And uh, indigenous peoples are more politically engaged than ever. Uh, that's an interesting story from this election. And I hope that it's something that people remember. Uh, what I talked about within my column is that we've only had the vote for 50 years and uh, that this exponential increase every single election will continue to increase and the center of that is Manitoba. It, the center of it is, is here in which we're seeing Indigenous participation, uh, rock the vote campaigns that's happening, uh, major Indigenous leadership are advocating Indigenous peoples to run. Well, they're saying we are separate nations. They're saying go vote in Canada's election as well. That's interesting. I think that's an interesting story that, that uh, we see playing out within the country itself and is going to force the Prime Minister to have to deal with some major Indigenous issue platform issues going forward, particularly involving the Trans Mountain Pipeline, but also the fact that the Prime Minister is about to sue or appeal the Human Rights Tribunal decision for Indigenous children who have been discriminated against. Uh, the judges have said so, the Canadian public says so, uh, the party in which he's going to have to form a coalition government has said so, and yet he's still going to take Indigenous children to, to court. We have this uh, many different intersections of history that's right before us, and the next I'll say 18 months of this government is going to be very interesting. And that's, um, I'm wondering, um, and Indigenous issues, I, I think, is one of the clearest examples. So one of the knocks against Trudeau fairly delivered is that, you know, he talked a lot of talk and he kind of only walked a little bit of walk. And so he left a lot of things sort of undone. I suppose if you want to look at it from a liberal glass half full, some of the things that he talked about doing, like repairing Canada's relationship with Indigenous people is maybe longer than a four-year project. So we'll, we'll, give, we'll sort of say, okay, that's longer than a four-year project. It does a minority government, particularly a liberal minority government propped up by the NDP, create new opportunities to, to really see some impactful policy on Indigenous issues and also on um, the environmental file, on climate change? Um, there's got to be some influence. Uh, there is it going to be enough to move, uh, you know, a prime minister who really got into trouble for being obstinate, arrogant, full of hubris? To, is is the minority government an antidote to to that? I, it's going to be interesting to see because nobody wants to go back to an election right away, particularly the NDP, and it's going to be up to them. Pardon me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And and uh, so, you know, does Trudeau govern like he's got a majority in the next 24 months? I mean, that's that's quite possible. Uh, I mean, nobody his, wants his speech yesterday was almost indicative of a majority government. He says, we have no interest in coalition or we're yeah. not intending. That's yeah, and, and that's fine because coalitions aren't part of Canadian, uh, the, the pol political landscape in Canada. But uh, minority governments, the reality of them is when you want to pass budgets and when you want to pass certain legislation, when there's confidence votes before the House of Commons, you've got to do deals. And uh, sometimes that means, uh, you know, uh, 
we'll give you this, not even legislatively. I mean, there may be demands that Jagmeet Singh makes that's, uh, you know, who, where we'll, we'll, we'll support your budget, we'll support your throne speech, but we want this. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if, if, if the Liberals and Justin Trudeau give in to that because they don't really have to. You know, do they call uh, the NDP's bluff and say, well, you guys aren't going to an election. There's no way you guys are going to defeat um, this confidence vote on whatever it is uh, and trigger an election. Um, so there's going to be that kind of, that, you know, there's going to be those kinds of gamesmanship going on in Parliament. But to a certain extent, I think Trudeau will be able to govern almost as if he has a majority in the next 18 to 24 months. After that, all bets are off. But did you see, I mean, on, on the, I'm going back to the uh, multitude of victorious uh, speeches on, on election night. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's interesting that Jagmeet Singh, uh, in his victory speech, or in his whatever speech that was, uh, immediately went to issues that olive branch issues, right? Like, didn't go to the issue of the pipeline. I don't, I don't even think... They talked about the environment. I'm not sure he talked about the pipeline in that speech. So, uh, but what's the first thing that he says is pharmacare. He says, yeah. and that is an olive branch issue uh, between themselves and the Liberals. And I think, of course, I would say that the NDP at this point, as you rightly pointed out, needs the Liberals perhaps a little bit more than the Liberals need the NDP. But the, I think the reason why the Liberals are going to go on a case-by-case -case basis is because this is all looking towards the pipeline. This is all looking to the Trans Mountain expansion because they're going to need the Conservatives to get that through. And they're also going to need the NDP to get through issues of the environment. Now, whether those come into collision, which could bring down the government, that is the real question. Yeah, I'm excited to see what the first two or three issues that they bring up are. I don't think it's going to be the pipeline. I think that maybe 18, 24 months from now, we'll start talking about Trans Mountain again. But Pharmacare, for sure, right off the hop, I think the NDP is going to be using as a negotiating uh, tool. And if we think back to Medicare, that was negotiated with minority government, with the NDP and Liberals as well. So maybe we'll have a second coming here of a, a major healthcare overhaul um, with a minority government in power. Well, it's interesting, too, with Trans Mountain, because there's no legislation required for it. Um, it it's before the courts. Uh, the, the, the government of Canada owns it. Owns it. Uh, it's been approved twice. Um, it's before the courts. It's under construction. It's under construction. They're right? going to lay They're the first section, right, 50 yeah, kilometers it, of it, pipe that, is that getting laid. That gets lost in yeah. the debate uh, to a certain extent. There's no legislation required. Um, the government of Canada doesn't need the approval of any opposition party, Jagmeet Singh or anybody else. However... You know, would Jagmeet Singh use that as, and uh, you know, th these are this is big stake stuff. But would he use that and say, you know, we we uh, we're not going to uh, vote with your budget or your throne speech or whatever confidence motion if you go ahead with the pipeline? I uh, doubt it. No, like, but that would be the only leverage they have because there's no legislation required. There's so no the, way of blocking it. The the fate of minority parties that carry the balance in, in the government for them to reap the greatest political rewards. It's not about how much you can get. It's about what you ask for, like how much you ask for. So I, I agree with Bill Morneau's comments. I, I don't think it's a political analysis. The pipeline's getting built. It's being built right now. Um, I mean, there is there's another pending uh, legal challenge that could throw it into sort of disarray, but politically and practically, that pipeline's gonna get built. I think if the NDP is very strategic, they go to the government now and they say, okay, you know, we're, we don't like this. Although I'm not even sure if the NDP policy is strictly speaking anti-Trans Mountain. I think it's, 
they, they've had some awkward language around it that suggests that that under the right circumstances, they're going to let that go. The right circumstances are meaningful investments uh, that uh, help people uh, wean off uh, fossil fuels. And, and like I said, I mean, I think that, and this is, this is where the liberals and Proper the NDP, consultation with indigenous leadership, that kind of stuff. No, no, absolutely. But they they well, yeah. use big words like, you know, we're, you know, anti-oil, anti-big oil. But yeah, when it comes down yeah. to it, w would they actually oppose it? Well, but, okay, and again, the, the, the second court challenge upcoming, which is, uh, again, once again about indigenous, uh, the right of consultation, and uh, is the, that, they are another player in this who could ultimately determine... Um, whether or not this pipeline ever gets finished, or whether they turn on the taps, what, what like what you what do you think is going to happen from that court challenge? I can already give you a spoiler alert. I know exactly what's going to happen. They're going to approve it, and what's going to happen is <laughs> this just in. Tell Paul. <laughs> uh, no, I can tell you right away. They're going to approve it, and here's why: is because there's way too much political capital, polit political investment, uh, money into this. So they're going to approve it no matter what. And then what's going to happen is then the arrests are going to begin. And those are going to be on the nightly news. And they're also going to be on uh, social media. And that will, that like, uh, like I agree with you completely that there is no uh, ability to legally stop it. But there is a social ability to stop it. And we've seen this before, massive uh, protests, marches, because the fact is that uh, governance of Indigenous peoples is broken in this country and this government has no interest in having a conversation on that issue. They continue to want to have a draconian control of Indigenous communities and that will, uh, you know, that creates a real fracture. Like for instance, uh, you saw all of these leaders, uh, Indigenous leaders on election night congratulating Justin Trudeau and then you saw a massive social media uh, of regular everyday grassroots Indigenous peoples condemning Trudeau. And that is the, that is the split right there. Um, one of the things that's really going to be interesting is whether, uh, when they do approve the pipeline and they start to move forward on it, is what will be the position of the NDP in relation to that? Because um, there's a there's a real paranoia in this country over having a true conversation on climate change and the environment, and that means that. Uh, there's almost no courage to really talk about it. There's only a courage to say things like the Paris targets or uh, the only party that was interested in having that conversation was the Green Party. Uh, the Green Party continually brings it up time and time again over the failure of, of Trudeau to be interested in any particular targets that will actually produce uh, and justify, uh, you know, rectify the issue of climate change. So that's where the carbon tax comes in is the, this kind of middle ground and as we know with the carbon tax, that is an exclusive prime ministerial slash premier divide down to court challenges by premiers that will fight the prime minister at every turn. So it, whether we continue to keep hammering on the carbon tax issue or we, issue, we look at a totally different idea involving climate change, we have to have a serious conversation about climate change in this country or else this will be, this will bring down this government, this will condemn the next government, this will be something that everyday Canadians are engaged and interested in over and over and over again. It's not going away. I agree. And what I was getting at before with the pipeline conversation is I think where this government is going to fall is going to be on environmental policy and differing opinions from the Conservatives, the NDP, the Green Party. Um, eventually, they're going to have to have that tough conversation about how do we fight climate change? What are the targets? 
the emissions targets that we need to reach to actually save the planet, whether it be at, at home or abroad, uh, helping with climate change globally. I think that's that's ultimately we're going to see the next election fought solely on the basis of climate change, and that's where the conservatives lost the election this time around, was having terrible climate policy, and even having right-leaning folks not willing to support the conservatives because of their lackluster green plan. Yeah, I also, I mean, I, I hope, although, I, you know, I, I have reason to not believe in my own hope, that, you know, the Trudeau uh, and the Liberals get away from this hokey uh, carbon tax rebate. Uh, as a voter, uh, not as a journalist, it, you, I'll tell you what, I, I'm going to do donate my $300 or whatever I'm getting. I want it to go to Alberta. I want it to go into an investment to create a job for somebody that's not involved in, um, you know, in, in fossil fuels, alternative energy, or entirely, you know, new industries. I want to see, you know, like if, if truckers and farmers, uh, if there's no reasonable alternative for them to stop burning fuel in their vehicles, let's say, then I want to see a wholesale electrification of rapid transit across the country. Like create, like, uh, you know, there, there needs to be like, because that was just, the, that, that probably was the most disappointing part of the carbon tax, is when they decided to rebate the money to buy off the voters in provinces where premiers were opposing the carbon tax. You know, if you're going to do it, you have to make all that money count, and, and they're not doing it. Again, the resolve to do that may come from, uh, from a minority government. Uh, but again, like the, the, the gains for Canadians that can be made from a minority, it's not just uh, how the Liberals govern, it's how the, the balance of power parties. Yeah, here's an interesting one. So what if the Liberals roll uh, funding for the construction of Trans Mountain into an omnibus budget bill? So do the Conservatives feel comfortable voting against the budget uh, even though they're voting against funding for Trans Mountain. I mean, I think they will be, but that, you know, there are cards the Liberals can play to, to move the other parties in, in Parliament around. Uh, on the carbon tax, um, it'll be really interesting to see uh, what happens with this $50 a ton carbon tax. It's a fraud. I mean, a $50 a ton carbon tax will do absolutely zero to change people's behavior. It'll do nothing to send out uh, price signals to people to you know, use their cars less or electrify their uh, transit systems or whatever. We all know, everybody knows that it has to get way up much higher, 200 300 $400 a ton for it to have that kind of an impact. Uh, I'm not, a, I'm not a, in favor of that. I think there are a lot of economic um, triggers that would occur if, if we got there, including inflation and, um, and, and many other um, uh, consequences that would arise from that. But if you're going to be a supporter of the carbon tax, if you're going to say this is how we're going to get there, you got to stop uh, walking around on eggshells and, 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 and go beyond this $50 a ton and get, and get real. Have a real conversation. If they want to have a real conversation about climate change and dealing with it through a carbon tax, you got to start talking about a three or $400 a ton carbon tax. If you're not there, it's, it's a joke. Yeah, I, I, you know, but I don't think the carbon tax in and of itself is supposed to be uh, the only thing that, uh, uh, like, you can't just wean an entire economy off uh, fossil fuels with a stick. Um, the, the, the carbon tax has to be set at a rate to generate the income 
to make the investments so that you and I, uh, our next cars are electric. And we know not only are our cars electric, but we have places to, uh, you know, to charge them. And we're confident wherever we are in the country that if we stop to recharge our electric yeah. car, we're using relatively clean energy. Um, but nine or that. ten cents on the liter is not going to change you or is not no, going to change I, your behavior okay, or mine. No, right? but I don't think that. But I don't think that that that's the point of a fifty. I think the fifty dollar a ton or whatever. I don't even. I agree with you. I don't know that that's the sweet spot. But it's not. That's not supposed to be just about discouraging people because it really. There's so much fluctuation in the price of gasoline, right? It's about creating the money uh, to to make the investments. And right now, the liberals are wasting the money. Like they're they're just they're just using it in the hokiest and and most uh, shameful way possible. So, you know. But the main reason behind a carbon tax is to change behavior. It's supposed to be a, a price signal. It's supposed to be no. It's the it's the chief reason. The there's there's revenues that are generated that could be used uh, for for you know green projects and so on. But the main uh, the main uh, uh, objective behind a carbon tax that all the economists talk about is you you send out price signals and you force people to change their behavior to 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 buy electric cars to for municipalities to electrify their their transit system etc that that's the main goal of a carbon tax and 50 bucks a ton ain't gonna do it now I, I don't know about you uh, guys on election night, but I was glued to results from Winnipeg Center. And uh, as I was, I, of course, I was keeping an eye on every Manitoba kind of race, but Winnipeg Center was as thrilling as an election can get. Started off with uh, the incumbent, uh, Robert Falcon, who led, led for about an hour plus. And then uh, you sort of saw Leah Gazan from the NDP inch up a little bit. And then finally, Ty. And then there was this <laughs> this glitch on the election result system in which the Green Party suddenly had 8,000 votes out of nowhere, which was kind of the funny story of the night. We were like, where do those Green Party votes? But it was Wolseley we're talking about. So I, it was within the realm of possibility that 8,000 votes come out of nowhere. <laughs> but then, of course, I was wrong. And then suddenly, Leah Gazan took back that seat, which Pat Martin had held for almost three decades, I remember, right? I mean, and so... Uh, what were the Manitoba races that you were most watching on election night? Um, that was the one in which I thought was a very interesting one. It involved, involved two very progressive candidates, very in, interested, engaged, and an indigenous, uh, all indigenous kind of front runner battle. Uh, um, was there any other Manitoba races that you're watching? I was watching the St. James one, maybe because I live there. But there was also this dynamic with Stephen Fletcher. Sorry, is that the full, the proper name I'm of the gonna, riding? I'm going to try to. I'm going <laughs> to. I'll, I'll give it a shot. St. James, Assiniboia, Charleswood, Headingley. Yeah. No, I got it wrong. It See, I can't even, it's my own riding. I yeah. can't even get it right. Sorry, put the microphone down, Tom. That's I, it. I'm yeah. just going to drop it. I mean, <laughs> if there's, you know, if, if there's anything we could do in the next two years before the next federal election, if we could shorten that name and maybe an acronym or something. But that was an interesting race because. Because Stephen Fletcher, well, of course, was was playing silly bugger with his for, with, you know with his old conservative signs, and and when and people were wondering, you know, is that enough to confuse people into thinking he's a conservative candidate? I was talking to Marty Morans, the conservative candidate who won that riding yesterday, and he, he never thought it was a real problem, but he had, he said he kept having, people were telling him, you know, that he, they thought it was a problem, and that um, and that you know people would be confused at the ballot box, and but I, th I guess at the end of the day, you know, you walk into the the voting booth, it 
it clearly says the name of the candidate and the name of the party underneath, and it, there's really no confusion. But it, it was interesting, you know, Fletcher was out there making up um, issues that didn't exist, like um, keep Heading Headingly uh, out of Winnipeg, which is not an issue, Stephen. Already out. It's, it's already out. <laughs> it's, it's not coming back. There isn't one... There isn't even one, you know, headingly wingnut that's that's advancing that <laughs> issue. But it's but it was it was funny to see that out there. We, that, we, that was an interesting writing because it was kind of close, you know. Yeah. And um, I I don't take any I never try to take any comfort in any individual being defeated, even if political or practically or ideologically I disagree with them. But I have to say, you know, I'm doing the big raspberry to the federal election commissioner. Uh, uh, or election debates commission. Uh, commission. Um, you know, uh, listen. If you're listening, guys, and I know you're regular listeners to the podcast. Um, next time you try to do an assessment of whether a party is a real thing or not, you might want to talk to some people in the actual provinces where they, you know, because they're they're, you know, whatever argument was made where they were convinced that there was like. I don't know, four or five uh, People's Party candidates that had a real chance of winning. You know, if if you had spent 30 seconds on the phone, call call the Tim Hortons or the Max Milk in that writing and ask them, and they would tell you a, a different story. So I did take some satisfaction in the fact that the People's Party did exactly what everybody thought it was going to do. Everybody except the debates commissioner thought it was going to do. We've already given the People's Party way too much air, I think. <laughs> way too much ink, and Stephen Fletcher included. But uh, I was watching Elwood Transcona closely on election night. Uh, I covered that one last time around in 2015. It was the closest race in the country, uh, decided by 61 votes. And obviously, it was a bigger margin this time around, uh, with Daniel Blakey winning by about 45% to Lawrence Toad's 37 Um and I think having it such a close margin last time around uh, kind of really scared the progressive voters into uh, backing Daniel Blakey and not splitting their votes and going liberal. Um, so it was one of the few NDP wins in the country, and he won by a relatively large and plurality Winnipeg, so there. Winnipeg too. South, Terry Duguid uh, won re-election and uh, established uh, Winnipeg South once again is uh, one of the most accurate bellwether ridings in the, you know, you could literally just look at that result uh, and the, uh, although, you know, uh, unlike the national result, he did actually get more votes than the second place candidate. But uh, yeah, it does, it's, a, it's a great, uh, fascinating reflection. Because the, the other thing I don't understand is it's been like 40 years now that Riding has uh, voted with the governing party. And yet it's undergone so much change. Like it, it's that Riding has changed so much, the demographics of it. And yet it still kind of falls into the pattern. So I thought that was interesting. One of the uh, election races that we probably don't hear mo more about, but I think is interesting in terms of uh, looking at a very Manitoba situation, is uh, I know we've spoken about this on the podcast before. Never vote against or never never believe against an Ashton in a Northern Riding, uh, but 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 <laughs> you know uh, Nikki Ashton's defeat of Judy Clausen, who is widely seen as a star candidate amongst the Liberals, uh, Judy Clausen had basically the entirety of the Manitoba Liberal uh, machine, the provincial machine, running her campaign. Noel Bernier, for example, was involved for a long time. And people who you know were on the ground going through communities, Judy, I know for a fact, went through a multitude of communities, much like Rebecca Chartrand, the election before, uh, who we've had on the podcast. You know, 
and still yet one handily. And uh, it's, it's evidence of a majority indigenous riding voting for a non-indigenous person and winning handily every time. I mean, I, mean, I think that's a real ind indicative. That's a kind of similar to a Kevin Lamoureux situation in Winnipeg North involving a uh, non-indigenous person within a, an indigenous riding, but also a very strong immigrant population who dedicates himself to immigrant issues exclusively and, uh, and then wins handily. I mean, the, the work that an MP does within the riding, I think, is shown in Manitoba as having, as it works, it works. It's and, it, and it speaks to the importance of identifying your vote and getting your vote out. <clears throat> the, 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 um, the success that the Nikki Ashtons and the, and the, and the Kevin Lamroos have in, in elections uh, are their ability also to, to identify votes and to get the vote out. I mean, that, that's, you know, that often gets forgotten in, in, in coverage of elections. We talk about issues, we talk about personalities, we talk about leaders, but the ground game is like half of it at least. I mean, it's so important and, and candidates and their staff are now walking around with, with apps and you know, they go door to door, they're plugging data into their apps. They know where their voters are, the ones who do it well, um, you know, are much more successful than others at identifying their vote, getting the vote out. I don't know how they do it. Guys like uh, Lamaru and, and, and people like Ashton with, with her dad. I mean, they're, they're, they're experts at it. They are so good at it, and that's why they keep winning. And, you know, we don't even think about Kevin Lamaru. We go, oh, no, he'll win. It doesn't matter what the national campaign is going to do. It doesn't matter, you know, where his riding is or, or what his constituency is. You know, uh, when, we, when we predict at the beginning of the campaign, we go, oh, no, well, Kevin Lamaru, oh, no, he's going to win. He's, he, I mean, he's got the ground game. Yeah. Like, it's not, even a, it's not even a debate. Do you know how good the information is now in voter ID databases? I mean, I don't know about you, Tom, but uh, every time there's an election, uh, I get uh, people calling in to have uh, signs put on my lawn. So, like as a journalist, I don't put signs on my lawn, but uh, people call in saying they're me to have signs put in, on the lawn. So the information is so good in the election database now that almost all the campaigns know not to put a sign on my lawn. If somebody calls up and says, yeah, I'd like a sign on, you know, such and such a, a house in Riverview, they know that that's a crank call. So that's, that's a pretty precise data. Nice. I, I know we got to wrap it up soon, but I'm just curious if you guys got any door knocks at all or robocalls. I, this is the first time I'm living in a house of my own during the election and got one door knock from Jim Carr, one flyer from the People's Party and in Winnipeg South Centre, and that was it. So how about you guys? I got tons of door knocks uh, in, in the riding uh, the, the name of which I can't I can't remember, um, and and I had I had signs you know uh, on my street from Greens, Liberals, Conservative, NDP. We had door knocking like constantly. I mean it was it was great. I love it. I mean I um, they they don't always know who I am, and sometimes I answer the door and I look at them, and then sometimes they realize, oh yeah, you're that guy. Anyway, see you later. <laughs> but we had a lot of door knocking and a lot of drops. Uh, isn't it just interesting? I, I didn't get any, by the way. I, I mean, uh, I love Jim Carr's riding, and I mean, very. Uh, it was pretty much fait accompli, I think, sort of at the very beginning. But um, isn't it interesting that uh, when we were talking about Manitoba personalities on the national stage, we only really talked about NDP and Liberals? And it's not that that. I mean, how many conservative MPs we have in Manitoba? Long-standing conservative rural MPs. But yet we're not really talking about those as names, as influencers, as people who have a lot of presence at the national stage. 
Uh, why is that? Why is that that uh, I'm racking my brain going, I, I know if I see their name, I know who that is. <laughs> but these are people who, uh, what is that about? What is, uh, and I think that that's an important uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, I know James Bazan, but I mostly know James Bazan because of Woody the horse, the videos that he did with his horse, uh, which I, I think is one of the great shtick of all, you know, bits of political shtick of all time. Um, no, I, I think, um, you know, uh, profile within a party, uh, influence, and um, particularly uh, cabinet, uh, you know, opportunities go to uh, MPs that have strategic political value. And increasingly, this is why, like, east-west is definitely a divide, but I think urban-rural is becoming the, the great divide. Urban-rural is the divide in the United States right now. It's, it's really um, uh, where, um, well, and north and south, too. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm really worried because I don't see opportunities to resolve that. So I think your observation is good, and and the power structure of the parties often reflects the fact that, you know, MPs from Toronto are strategically important, uh, an MP from Northern Ontario, eh, not so much, you know. So, and we see that at the provincial and the federal level in Manitoba. I mean, we don't even talk about. The, the races outside of Winnipeg federally, other than, you know, uh, Nikki Ashton up north. But even then, you know, it was a fait accompli. We don't even talk about Larry McGuire and, and Bizan and, and Steinbach. And, and we don't, I mean, it's, it's it, they're, they're just, it's given that the Conservatives are going to win that. And, and provincially, not quite the same divide, but right now it is, hasn't necessarily been in, in the past. We've seen the interlake areas and whatever go NDP, but uh, increasingly, it's, it's that same divide. I mean, we, we, we all look at Winnipeg and say this is where the battle, this is where elections are, are won and lost in Manitoba, and the rest, the rest of outside of Winnipeg doesn't matter. I mean, it's a huge divide. So um, we could go on and on. As a matter of fact, we're going to turn off the recorder now and just keep going. We got more coffee. We're just going to, we're going to keep going because none of us have anything better to do, right, Professor? No, that's right. <laughs> That's right. I will it, figure out the name. Yeah, of my Nagan riding. has to teach it. That, yeah, that's right. And we're gonna. That's right. We're gonna try and name all 14 Manitoba federal ridings. Um, uh, I want to say thanks to Tom Broadbeck, Jessica Patel, Urbanski, and Nagan Sinclair. And I'm Dan Lett. And this has been Not for Attribution. And uh, thank you very much for joining. <laughs>